I'm Susan Robb, along with Amy Schnitzer and Darian Butcher. We are the co-chairs of the Trust and Estates Committee, CLE uh, subcommittee. Um, and we are so thrilled to have Allison Glover and Nicole Jackson-Leslie with us today, um, talking about planning in Massachusetts in 2023. Allison is a partner in the private client department of Mintz Levin's Boston office. She works with high net worth individuals, their families, and their businesses on all, all aspects of trust, estate, and tax planning matters. Nicole is a senior wealth planner at Brown Brothers Harriman. She provides guidance to families and individuals throughout all aspects of their estate planning, including generational transfer of family wealth, business succession, philanthropy, next generation education, and tax minimization. Prior to joining Brown Brothers, Nicole was an associate in the wealth management group at Choate Hall and Stewart. Nicole is involved with many professional groups, serves on several nonprofit boards, and is a 2164 certified advisor. Take it away. Thank you, Susan. And thank you all for joining us. Nicole and I are really excited to be here today and looking forward to talking to you all about um, things that are relevant in 2023, right? So what's going on this year? What, what are planners, um, what, are, what are we doing for our clients right now? And so we have, we have a, a wide variety of topics to, um, to discuss today. Some tax law changes, either um, recent tax law changes that are in effect today, or things that are in the not too distant horizon that we are already planning for. Um, also some market conditions. 2023 is, is a bit of a funny year. We're seeing some conditions in the market that we've not seen in previous years or not, not seen for quite some time. So we'll talk to you about that. And then last, we'll talk about some popular planning techniques, um, things that are, are either directly relevant to tax law changes, things that are directly relevant to the market conditions, or just generally gaining in popularity and things that we're seeing um, be very useful for our clients right now. So first, we'll start with the Massachusetts Millionaire's Tax. Um, for those of us who live here in Massachusetts, we, we know that this was a very hot issue last fall. It was on our, our ballot, um, and both sides, those for and against, spent heavily advertising um, for their positions. In the end, um, the, the initiative passed, and so as of today, we have a 4% surtax added to um, the... Um, the income of uh, those residents that surpasses a million dollars. So it's the first million is still taxed at the regular rate, which is generally 5%. Um, and then every dollar over the million is taxed at, at this additional 4%. Um, it's effective beginning um, a, a few months ago, January 1st. And as I said, it's added to the current rate. For most income, that's 5%. Now Massachusetts has a, a funny um, category of 12% income that applies to short-term capital gains. And we'll talk a little bit about a proposed change there in, in just a couple of minutes. And also gains from the sale of collectibles. So um, I guess artwork or coin collection, um, something of that nature would ordinarily be taxed at 12%. And then with the surtax that would be kicked up to 16%. The million dollar threshold is indexed for inflation. So that will be something north of a million dollars next year and keep going um, from there. Um, now, this provision—it's I mean, unusual because this is not how tax law is usually made. Um, ballot questions and constitutional amendments—that's generally not how um, taxes are are increased or or decreased or or brackets are changed. Here, it was necessary because the Massachusetts Constitution prohibited 
graduated tax rates. So it's very common, right? We we all know in in under federal income tax law that there are there are brackets, right? There are there are a different rate applies as you as you go up the the brackets. The Constitution of Massachusetts prohibited that, and so in order to have a surtax on income exceeding a certain level, it was necessary to amend the Constitution. And they didn't just amend the Constitution by um, sort of providing for for allowing for um, the graduated tax rate, but rather they said these specific provisions are in the law. So the the 4%, that is in the Massachusetts Constitution today. And I, I bring that up because that, that just means it's hard to change, right? If someone, uh, if the legislature, if Massachusetts voters in general, if, if people just feel that, you know, 4% is not the right number, it should be two, it should be six, it, we shouldn't have this at all. Or or as, as things change, it will be very difficult to change as, as time goes forward. So some planning techniques. So for us as estate planners, um, this this is a very um, relevant change in the law to all of our clients. I, I know that I've had a lot of conversations with clients about this, um, especially in the first few months of the year. This was a really big issue, and and people feel people feel strongly about it, and 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 doing some some planning um, where appropriate. So one one technique would be to consider non grantor trusts. So as estate planners, I, I mean, I love grantor trusts. I think we all love grantor trusts. They they provide a lot of flexibility. And in addition, we know that there is that huge benefit of having the higher generation level pay the income taxes for the lower generation level, right? That That's very, very powerful over time. Um, but that also means that the grantor trust is ignored for tax purposes, including for Massachusetts tax purposes. So if you have a grantor who is already over a million dollars of income, then every dollar that is attributable to that grantor trust is going to be subject to the surtax. If, on the other hand, you were to make it a non-grantor trust, then that trust would be a separate taxpayer, separate from the grantor, and would have a, a its own bracket. So you could imagine a situation where a grantor had a million dollars of income, his grantor trust had a million dollars of income by making it non-grantor. Now you now neither of them are in the um, above the million dollar threshold where the surtax would apply. Um, in addition, I, I think it's interesting to note that you so turning off the grantor trust would would make it a um, a separate taxpayer, so it has its own bracket. But in addition, you could the grantor could consider going one step further and considering whether it's possible to make the grant the formerly grantor trust now non-grantor trust a non-Massachusetts trust. And it's actually relatively simple to do that in Massachusetts because in Massachusetts there are two prongs for a trust to be a resident trust. It has to be created um, by a Massachusetts resident or if a formerly revocable trust created by a Massachusetts decedent. And you also have to have an in-state trustee. So if you had a, um, a Massachusetts grantor who created an irrevocable trust for the benefit of, let's say, his or her children, and they had um, his or her brother or sister serving as trustee who was also a Massachusetts resident, um, Actually, let's not use brother or sister as as an example, but his or her neighbor serving as as the as the trustee, then it will be a Massachusetts resident trust. But if the neighbor were to resign as trustee 
and a friend in another state were to be appointed, then that would no longer be a Massachusetts resident trust. So in that case, not only would the turning off of the grantor trust save the surtax, but it would also save all of the state taxes. And depending on the residence of the new trustee, it may be that there is no state income tax associated with the trust, right? If you had a, um, a Massachusetts grantor and you had a um, New Hampshire or Florida or even a, a New York um, uh, trustee, then that would not cause that trust to be to be taxed in any of those those jurisdictions. I want to note that source income is always going to be taxed in the source uh, source state. So if you have rental real estate as a classic example, you have an apartment building in Boston, those rents are source income to Massachusetts. And even if you have a non-grantor trust with no Massachusetts trustee, that's always going to be subject to Massachusetts taxes. So what are the pros and cons of turning a, a non-grantor trust into a grantor trust? Um, so as we talked about the pros, potentially not just saving the 4% surtax, but also potentially the whole entire state tax. Um, I've also find that some of the some of my clients who have grantor trusts and have had them for a long time are really they understand the power right and that it's been very um, efficient in transferring wealth to the next generation. But sometimes they say, you know what, I've paid the kids taxes for 10, 15, 20 years, and I feel at this point I've transferred enough wealth. So maybe that's the point where they say, for a lot of reasons, it makes sense to. For it to become a non-grantor trust, um, it also aligns the taxes with the cash flow, right? Because sometimes with the grantor trust, you have a big income event and the grantor picks that up, which is great, but then the trust gets the distribution from you know, the entity, let's let's say, that caused the tax. Um, and that can prevent that can cause a, a cash flow disparity because the grantor has the tax liability, whereas the trust um, has the cash. So that those are are some reasons that some of my clients have considered um, switching from a grantor trust into a non-grantor trust. Um, what are what are the cons? Um, loss of flexibility, right? With a grantor trust, you can do a lot of planning very efficiently. Uh, you can sell assets with your grantor trust. Um, it qualifies as an S-corp shareholder. Uh, obviously, the very powerful transfer tax um, savings that we've been talking about. So all of those are, are real considerations for the grantor to think about before going ahead and, and turning off the grantor trust status. Another consideration is changing residence. Now, now this is this is a big one, right? Um, to actually you know, change where you physically are, change your day-to-day -day life um, because, because of this, this tax law. And I think where I'm seeing this is more people who were already had had one foot in Florida or or one foot in New Hampshire or or some other state that this is just something that's making them perhaps accelerate the move to the other, the other location. Um, I think we should point out that it's not that easy, right? It's sort of easier said than done. A lot of people think, um, oh, all I need to do is spend 185 days in another location and then I'm good. But that that's not necessarily true. There are two different ways that you'll be a Massachusetts resident for tax purposes. One is your legal residence, your domicile. And that's really where you maintain your your ties. So the um, the government would look at factors like 
Um, if you have minor kids, where are they going to school? Um, where where are your social clubs? Where are your social ties? Where um, where's your your work or or whatever you do for for to, to earn a living? Um, it's sort of the you know, the concept of home is where the heart is. Like really, where are you? Where do you consider yourself? The charities that you support, the things that you care about. Um, and that that's a very facts and circumstances based test. And it's also one that's hard to just stop on a dime, right? Because you have these ties in Massachusetts and it's really hard to all of a sudden just um, move them all to Florida, right? It's not just changing your driver's license and registering to vote, but it's all of those soft um, factors as, as well. And then in addition to the domicile, um, there is that, that 183-day test. If you are a legal resident, you're domiciled in another state, but you maintain a, um, a permanent place of abode in Massachusetts and spend more than 183 days, then you will also be a resident. So it's both tests that, that you would have to that you would have to meet. I also wanted to note a few um, changes that were proposed by Governor Healy earlier this year. Two that are particularly relevant to estate planners are increasing the estate tax exemption from a million dollars to $3 million. Um, Massachusetts currently, um, despite having some, you know, very, um, very wealthy individuals and some very um, high-valued real estate. Um, we have the lowest estate tax exemption in, in the country. And I think that that changing from one million to three is, is definitely um, a step in the right direction and would bring Massachusetts more in line with many other states that have um, that have increased their exemption. Most states actually don't even have an uh, state estate tax at all. And those that do, most have increased their exemption amount over the past few years. Um, and so this would bring Massachusetts more in line with that. And then this, this last point about reducing the income tax on short-term capital gains, um, that that funny point that I, I mentioned before would just get rid of that special class of, of income taxed at a, at a higher rate. There are also a few other provisions in, in this act that um, there's a um, increase for the renter's deduction and um, child tax credits and, and some, other, um, some other notes, but these are sort of the big ones that would apply to estate planners. So next, I want to talk to you about the Corporate Transparency Act. Um, I wish that we were in a live room because I could ask you all to raise your hands as to how many of you are are, are working on this and, and talking about this right now, because I'm finding that not many people are, but I think that this is something that's going to really impact our, our lives next year. Um, this, this is... I think a, a very, um, you know, it, it has the potential to to be very, very important and and something that we'll all be talking about, I think, um, in the next six months, if not sooner. So a little bit of background. What 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 is this all about? Um, this is about criminal activity. Um, this is anti-money laundering. Um, it's, it's really to close what I think is a perhaps a perceived weakness um, as between the US and other developed countries in disclosure requirements. And 
So here, this is um, an, a law that, that was enacted several years ago, but it starts to come, it has a phased um, enforcement um, date, and it starts, that starts um, next January. This is regulated by FinCEN, Department of, uh, Department of the Treasury, um, dealing with financial crimes. And what it does is it requires um, small corporations, LLCs, uh, limited partnerships, basically companies that are are required to uh, be filed with the Secretary of State, and it requires those companies to report their beneficial owners. So if you think about it now, if you create an LLC for your clients, um, and you you do it in Massachusetts or or Delaware or any any other state, you you generally put have to file on your certificate of organization certain informations like the the manager, the name, but you don't have to disclose who owns the company. So you could have an LLC that is um, managed by John Doe and you disclose John Doe when you file with the Secretary of State, but you never say who the owner is. Is the owner also John Doe? Is the owner the John Doe Revocable Trust or is it um, Jane and and James Doe, right? The, you, those that information is not disclosed anywhere. And starting next year, the ownership of those companies um, will have to be disclosed. So this applies to both domestic companies and foreign companies. And any company that uh, is subject to this role, we call a reporting company. So reporting companies are companies that, um, if domestic, were either created by filing a document with the Secretary of State, or if foreign, they were created under the laws of another nation, but that they um, filed with the Secretary of State in order to um, be able to do business here in the United States. Now, there are 23 exceptions, and I will spare you the details of going into all of those, but I'll, I'll hit on the, the most common ones. Um, many entities that are already subject to strict regulation, think um, insurance companies, banks, um, those companies are going to be exempted because they're already getting this information through some other avenue. Um, tax exempt entities, um, most will will be will be exempt here. Um, there's a specific um, exemption for companies that are dormant, but you have to be look very carefully at the at the exceptions there because. Um, there's dates and, and certain requirements to make sure that you you fit there. But this, I think, is a big one, right? Because how many LLCs have we created for our clients that aren't really useful anymore, right? They they might be on the Secretary of State's website still, or no one's really doing anything with them. Maybe no one closed them down, or, or so. I think that that is a um, going to be a, a big one for us, at least to to look at. You know, what are these entities, and are they still in use, and do we have to report for them? There's also an exception for large operating companies. Uh, so these are, you have to have 20 or more employees, uh, 5 million of gross receipts, and a physical presence in the United States. Um, so that's probably not going to apply to most of our client, um, our client situations. I really think that for most of our, meaning estate planners, I think that most of the entities we create for our clients are going to have to be reported. So what do you have to report? So you looked at the exemptions, you don't fit into any of the 23 exemptions. So what do you have to do? Um, so you have to report the company information, 
the beneficial owner information and the applicant information, but the applicant information only applies to new companies. So for any of those historic companies that we've created in the past this year or, or prior, we don't have to report anything on the applicant. And I'll get into each of each of these and, and what the requirements are. Company information. So th this, this is easy. The legal name of the company, a DBA if it has one, um, the address, the physical address, the jurisdiction where it was formed, and the federal tax ID number. So far, so good. Beneficial owner information. Now, th this, this is the big one. This is, this is what it's all about, right? So for each beneficial owner, you have to report the legal name, his or her date of birth, residential street address. So not, not a PO box, not a business address, their residential street address. And you have to provide an identification document. So that would be like your driver's license or passport. You have to include an image of, of the ID and also the, the number, like your passport number, your, your Massachusetts driver's license number. So who is a beneficial owner? Um, that would be an individual who exercises substantial control or who owns or controls 25 percent or more of the company. And so let's drill down a little further into, into each of those. Substantial control, that's really a facts and circumstances um, test, but there are some examples that were given in, in the rules. So um, FinCEN has, has released, um, you know, there's some fact sheets online. And I would encourage you to, to look at their website. That, that's helpful. And then there are there were rules that were that were published recently um, that, that give some examples. And, and so these, these come right from, from those rules. Senior officers, so president, um, treasurer, secretary, um, you know, anyone's very senior to the company would be considered as to have substantial control over the company. Um, if you have the authority to remove or appoint senior officers or a majority of the director, that would also be as having um, substantial control. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, substantial influence over important matters. Um, so that's like, um, like if you had the ability to amend the LLC operating agreement, they would see that as having substantial control. Makes sense. And then there's a catch-all. Any other form of substantial control. So I, I leave that to you to to think about what 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 does that mean. Um, but I think in our in our case, what what we're doing with our um, LLC agreements a lot of times is is probably the most common. Most of the time that the members, um, you know, and if you have officers of your of your LLC and your managers are probably going to have substantial control. Um, and then in addition, so there's substantial control. There's also owner, the 25 percent ownership or 25 percent of of the vote. Um, and this this is somewhat easy, I think, for for us as estate planners, because oftentimes we just have straight um, ownership equity of of the of the um, in the operating agreement, right? Like the uh, two trusts own, you know, each owns fifty percent of the LLC. But in more complex um, business arrangements, you have all sorts. You know, it's not like you just have um, 
straight equity interests, but you could have different classes of stock, voting and non-voting, uh, profits interests. There could be all different types of ownership and different rights associated with those. So I think this will get um, really hard for, for some of our colleagues who are looking at this from sort of like the business side. But for us, I think for the most part, um, it's going to be somewhat straightforward. We will be able to pretty easily determine who has 25%. And there is aggregation for individuals who own directly and indirectly. So you could think about if there were, um, if John Doe has 10% of the equity of the LLC, but also is the trustee um, of a trust that holds another 15%, then he gets to 25%. So what about trusts? So trusts themselves are not reporting companies. And, and that was that was something that people had, had worried about and I think potentially could be on the horizon in the future that trusts themselves could have to report and then you'd have to report the beneficiaries of the trust. But as, as it stands today, no. Trusts are not reporting companies, but trusts, of course, can be beneficial owners. So what do you do if you have a trust that's a beneficial owner? Because remember, this act is trying to get to individuals. It's trying to look through, right? It doesn't want you to report a trust. It wants you to report all the way through to the end individual. So who is the beneficial owner if the trust owns the interest? The trustee, that, that's sort of uh, an easy one. The trustee who has the authority to dispose of the trust assets. So in a traditional trust, that would probably just be your, your regular trustee. Now, in some directed trusts or, or other type of arrangements, you could potentially have a, um, a distribution trustee, an investment trustee, an administrative trustee. And so looking at specifically what authorities that fiduciary has and whether they would be considered a beneficial owner for purposes of this rule. Um, also, beneficiaries who would be the sole permissible recipient of income and principal or has a right to withdraw substantially all of the assets of the trust. So here, um, if your revocable trust owns, um, owns um, an interest in a reporting company, then you would be considered the beneficial owner of your revocable trust. Um, and we also have point three, a grantor or settler who has the power to revoke or withdraw. So again, there, um, your revocable trust, it would be very clear that you're the beneficial owner of your own revocable trust. Applicant information. So again, this is only relevant for companies that are created after January 1st of next year. So an applicant is someone who directly files the organizational document. So this could be like the paralegal who files this. This could be the um, service company who files this with the Secretary of State. It could be the lawyer who files it. Um, the rules make clear that there can be a maximum of two. So even if you had a partner, an associate, and a paralegal who all were involved in the formation of the entity, there's only two. So the individual who directly files the, the document perhaps the paralegal, that person, and then the person who's responsible for directing or controlling the filing. So probably the supervising lawyer who supervises the paralegal, those two would be considered applicants that need to be reported. Um, it could also be like the, the service company um, itself could 
could be a company applicant if you um, if you do use a service company for, for these types of things. So what does the applicant have to report? Um, similar to the beneficial owner, legal name, date of birth, um, street address, except that if the individual is doing this um, in the course of their employment, then they can use their business address instead of their personal residential address. And again, you still do need to include the applicant's identification document and number. There is a special provision that um, I saw that that FinCEN's going to allow um, applicants who do this often to submit their information directly and get a unique number. And then going forward, they will just be able to put that unique number on each of these reports. So if I'm a lawyer who regularly creates um, entities for my clients and I don't want to have to disclose all of this information about myself, um, you know, dozens of times every month, I could just do this one time, get this number, and then just put that number on all the applications going forward. And so I think that will be very useful. And I think a lot of a lot of us who form entities will end up um, using that um, as, a, as a time saver. And so a couple of examples, these, these examples come um, right from the frequently asked questions that were published recently from FinCEN. So the, these are kind of easy ones, but um, I, I, I like to, to go through these with you. Um, so if the reporting company is a corporation, the company's total outstanding ownership interests are shares of stock, Three people own 50%, 40%, and 10% respectively. And then another person, D, does not own any stock, but is the president. So in that case, who would be the beneficial owners? So I wish we were, we were alive and I could, I could see all of you, but I'll tell you the answer here is the president. He doesn't own any stock, but he does have substantial control. The person who owns 50%, and then also the person who owns 40%, but not C, the person who owns 10%. The next example, the reporting company is an LLC. If you are the sole owner and president of the company and you make important decisions for the company, no one else owns or controls the company or exercises substantial control. So very clear there, you, right? Single member LLC, that would be you and you'd be the the. Um, beneficial owner of the entire LLC there. Last example, the reporting company is a corporation owned by four individuals who each own 25% of the stock. And then you have four other people who don't own any of the stock, but that serve as the CEO, CFO, COO, and the general counsel. Then in that case, you would have eight beneficial owners. So you can see how very quickly you could end up with many beneficial owners for a reporting company. So as I said before at the beginning, what is this all about? This is about uh, financial crimes, money laundering, um, giving you know, the government transparency into who is, is owning these, these entities. Well, who has access to this, right? So there, there's a list of, of, of who, who has all this access um, because this is really sensitive information. Um, it is not available to the general public. There's not going to be a, a, a searchable database where, where you can find these things. There's very specific uses for, for this information. And then administration, um, this is this is why I say that I, I think this is going to be really big um, next year. This is something we'll all be talking about. The government estimates that there are 32 million entities currently in existence that will need to report next year. 
So think about that. 32 million companies are going to report their beneficial ownership next year. I mean, that, that, or I'm sorry, by, by January 1st of, of 2025. So you, you would be able to start filing next year and then, you know, you would have to file by January 1 of 2025. But that's, that's a lot. Certainly every single one of us here today, this is going to impact us. So for existing companies, um, if you were registered before January 1st, 24, you have until January 1st, 2025 to do your initial filing. But new companies, so if you create an entity for a company on January 2nd, you have 30 days to file. You cannot file early. Um, I don't think that uh, this is all going to be done electronically through, through a website. I don't think the website is, is even up and running, um, but they won't start accepting these reports until next January. So there's there's no um, no ability to try to get a head start on, on all of this. Um, and there is no filing fee, which I suppose is good if they they want everyone to 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 comply with this. They try to try to make it easy by doing electric electronic reporting and not charging a fee for it. But of course, there's there is a cost to to preparing these reports and getting them done. And you know, I, I think about the the logistics, right? Like um if we're creating a new entity for a client, well, well, sure, we'll we'll talk to the client. This is the requirement. This is what needs to be done. Are you going to file it? Are we going to file it? Is your accountant going to file it? But what about all those old entities? What about you know all the LLCs and limited partnerships and all the corporations that that were created, you know, five, 10, 15 years ago, where maybe you're still in touch with the client, maybe not. And, and so it's it's really interesting to see how this, this will unfold and um, how this will all get done and by whom. And then what about changes, right? So you file this report and you say, okay, I'm done, right? I, I filed my report, now I can forget about this. No, you have to update when there are changes. So if any of the information that was reported to FinCEN changes, you have 30 days to file an, um, an amended um, application to show those changes. Um, there are a couple exceptions that you don't need to update if it's just um, a change to the document. So like if you renew your driver's license, you don't need to just file and um, for that purpose. And then there's no need to make changes for an applicant. So if the paralegal who filed this, um, to create the LLC then moves, changes their, you know, their uh, place of employment or, or their place of residence, then there is no need to tell, um, to file an update for, for that person. I think the thinking is that the applicant is involved in the beginning, but then there's really no ongoing relationship sort of with the applicant that the government is, is interested in knowing where the applicant has moved. But certainly changes in beneficial ownership or changes to, you know, with respect to the, the person, like if you had a trust that was the, if you had a trust that was the owner, and then the trust divides at someone's death into four equal shares, well, that's another reason why you have to, to have to update this. So I think with with a lot of our entities, we create entities with the expectation that they will be changed going forward, right? You have um, one trust that splits up into many for, for um, the children at, at some point, or you have a trust and you expect to sell um, shares of the LLC over some period of time. So oftentimes, yes, our entities 
do experience changes in beneficial ownership. And so just keeping in mind that it's not just filing when you create this thing, but it's periodic reporting whenever there are changes. And with that, I will turn it over to Nicole, who's going to walk us through the Secure Act. Thank you, Allison. That's great. Um, thank you. Okay, so I'm going to discuss the SECURE Act. So SECURE stands for Setting Every Community Up for Retirement Enhancement. Um, some of you may remember that the original SECURE Act passed in December 2019, and it was passed with the goal of making saving for retirement more accessible, um, given the lack of retirement savings of Americans. Um, so the original SECURE Act that passed in 2019 did a few things to help um, increase retirement savings, including raising the age for RMDs and allowing individuals to contribute to their traditional IRAs regardless of age, um, whereas before this, there was a cap. You could not contribute to those accounts after age 70 and a half. Um, I think what most people probably remember, at least on this call um, from Secure Act, is that it eliminated the stretch IRA for non-spouse beneficiaries. So before SECURE Act, um, beneficiaries of inherited IRAs could take out RMDs from those accounts based on their own life expectancies, and that ended after the SECURE Act. So if we fast forward to December 2022, um, SECURE Act 2.0 became law as part of the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2023, and it made a number of updates with the ongoing goal of improving retirement outcomes and opportunities for Americans. Um, so to start, I'll go over the 2023 contribution limits for various retirement accounts. So this year, you can contribute up to $22,500 to an employer-sponsored plan. So that's something like a 401k or a 403b with a $7,500 catch-up contribution for those who are 50 and older. And there is a $6,500 limit for IRAs with a $1,000 catch-up provision for those who are 50 and older. And that $1,000 catch-up amount will be indexed for inflation starting next year. Um, so part of some of the things that Secure Act 2.0 did in terms of contribution limits is that beginning in 2025, there is a new catch-up limit for workers who are ages 60 to 63. Um, they will be able to use a catch-up contribution amount of the greater of $10,000 or 150% of the um, catch-up contribution limit of that year. Beginning next year, all catch-up contributions will be uh, must be made to a Roth account using after-tax dollars. Um, and as I mentioned, beginning in 2024, the catch-up contribution limit will be indexed for inflation. So all of these things are geared towards allowing people to save more money for retirement and for longer, especially if they weren't able to do so earlier in life for whatever reason. Um, another important part um, of retirement accounts are required minimum distributions or RMDs. So these are the mandatory distributions that must be made from tax deferred accounts. Um, RMDs are included in your ordinary income for that year. So that's something to keep in mind when you're doing your tax planning. Um, so Secure 2.0 increased the age at which RMDs are required from 72 to 73. 
So it's 73 this year. And in 2033, that age will increase to 75. And keep in mind, if you have a Roth IRA, there are no RMDs. So you are not subject to these age requirements. You can leave the money in that account as long as you'd like. And if you or your clients do reach the age where you're subject to RMDs, but they don't leave the money, they could consider something called a qualified charitable distribution, um, which is when you send part or all of your RMD to a qualifying charity. And I'll talk about that a little bit more in a few minutes. Um, <clears throat> could you go to the next slide, please, Allison? Um, another piece that we're probably all familiar with or have heard about with Secure 2.0 are the very complex set of rules that um, handle how distributions are made from retirement accounts when the account owner dies. Um, so the general rule following the SECURE legislation is that there is a max 10-year payout period, which means no stretch, um, with some exception. And the, those exceptions are for people that, or entities that qualify as eligible designated beneficiaries, which includes the surviving spouse, minor children who are under 21, disabled individuals, chronically ill individuals or individuals who do not fit into these categories, but are not more than 10 years younger than the account owner. Um, so if you don't fit into any of these exceptions, which um, include many types of trusts, the payout period will depend on whether the account owner died before or after the required beginning date, which is when RMDs would have started for that person. Um, so like I said, these are very complex and there's a lot of if or whens. Um, it's kind of like a decision tree when you're trying to figure out what the payout period is. And I think the takeaway is that when you're talking with your clients about um, their retirement accounts, you know, the first step is to make sure that they have a beneficiary designation form on file um, and that it's up to date and to just walk through the different types of outcomes that would take place depending on who they name as the beneficiary, um, and especially if they're if they're naming a trust, just walking through how that would interact, how the different payout periods interact with the terms of the trust. Um, the surviving spouse is still the most favored beneficiary for retirement accounts. Um, they can still do a rollover, which means that they can um, roll over the inherited IRA into their own IRA and then stretch that out over their lifetime. And um, charities are also eligible beneficiaries for retirement accounts. So if you have clients who are charitably inclined and um, their family won't need this money, that's always an option as well. Okay, so there's some other perks um, that came along with Secure 2.0. So the first deals with expanded qualified charitable distributions or QCDs. So this is a direct transfer from an IRA um, custodian to a qualified charity. Um, qualified charities do not include donor advised funds, private foundations, or supporting organizations for purposes of QCDs. So the QCD, you are taking money directly from your IRA and sending it to charity, and that amount can be used to count towards your RMD for that year. Um, so if you, if you're reaching the age where you're subject to an RMD and you don't need the money, this is an option. Um, you do have to be 70 and a half to do a QCD, but like I just mentioned, the RMD age is now 73. So it might not be 
worth it to do it before um, age 73. But if you have a client who would like to make a charitable contribution and doesn't have other funds, um, they could do this even though they're not subject to RMDs yet. There is an annual limit of $100,000. That's the most that you can use for QCD each year. So if your RMD is over that, you can do up to $100,000, but then you'll still have to take the balance as an RMD. And part of the SECURE legislation is that this amount, the $100,000 limit, will be indexed for inflation beginning in 2024. Um, and in 2023, another new piece from SECURE is that you can direct up to $50,000 of your QCD to a charitable remainder trust or a charitable gift annuity. Um, so this is new. And this is a once per lifetime amount. So it's a total $50,000 one-time distribution that you can make to a charitable remainder trust or a charitable gift annuity. Another perk has to do with 529 college savings plans. So these are tax advantage um, college savings plans that are funded with after-tax dollars, but grow tax-free and withdrawals are tax-free as long as they are used for qualifying expenses. That includes tuition, room and board, fees, books, laptops, um, K through 12 tuition, <clears throat> excuse me, things like that. Um, so what SECURE did is they added a provision saying that beginning in 2024, a 529 account owner can roll over funds from certain 529 accounts into Roth IRA accounts for the benefit of that same 529 plan beneficiary. So if I have a 529 plan that I set up for my daughter and she's done with school and she doesn't need the money anymore, I could take money from the 529 plan and send it to a Roth IRA, IRA for the benefit of my daughter subject to these limits that are listed below. Um, so these rollover distributions are subject to the annual IRA contribution limit, um, which is $6,500 this year. And there is an aggregate lifetime amount of $35,000. Um, so you could get a few years out of this under the current IRA contribution limits. The 529 plan account also must have been open for at least 15 years prior to the rollover. And contributions made within five years leading up to the rollover are not eligible for this. So this just adds some flexibility, um, especially if you're dealing with um, clients who have overfunded 529 plans. This is a great way to get some money out of those plans and also start the healthy habits of the next generation saving for retirement earlier. Um, if you have clients that take advantage of this and they still have 529 plans that are we're overfunded. Um, you keep in mind that the money can stay in those accounts and be used for graduate school, um, or you can change the beneficiary to other family members or even you know, beneficiary's um, spouse. Um, it's sort of a last resort to take the money out of a 529 plan and use it for non-qualifying expenses because at that point you would have to pay tax on the money you take out as well as a 10% penalty. So try to avoid that if possible. Another provision um, of SECURE 2.0 dealt with ABLE accounts. So ABLE stands for Achieving a Better Life Experience. These are tax advantage savings accounts for individuals with disabilities. And contributions to these accounts can be made without jeopardizing that individual's 
eligibility for certain federal federal benefits like Medicaid or Social Security income. Under the current law, you have to have had your onset of disability at age 26 in order to be eligible for an ABLE account and Secure 2.0 increased that age to 46 um, beginning in 2026. So this just expands the class of individuals who will be able to take advantage of these sorts of tax advantage savings accounts. Um, so this isn't on the slide, but some other perks of Secure 2.0 just deal with expanding the exceptions to the early withdrawal penalties for retirement accounts. So typically, if you take an early withdrawal from your account, you'll have to pay tax, and then you might also be subject to a 10% penalty. Um, some, some exceptions that have been in place in the past and still remain include um, purchasing a home, paying for higher education, and paying for disability costs. Um, Secure 2.0 added a few exceptions, including distributions to victims of domestic violence, terminally ill employees, certain withdrawals made after a federally declared disaster, distributions to certain public safety employees, and up to $1,000 per year for personal and family emergencies. I'm going to move on to the hot topic that I'm sure everyone is thinking about is the exemption sunset. So this is the sunset of the federal gift and estate tax exemption. I'm sure you're all aware, but the exemption amount is the amount that you can either give away during your lifetime without being subject to the 40% federal gift tax or die owning um, assets up to that amount without being subject to the 40% federal estate tax. So this exemption was doubled back in 2018 as a result of the tax cuts and jobs act. So in 2017, the exemption was 5.49 million per person. And in 2018, it doubled to 11.18 million per person. So this has been um, an exciting opportunity for many of our clients. And as planners, I think everyone has been busy you know, setting up new trusts and thinking through gifting strategies to take advantage of these high exemption um, amounts. So part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act legislation included a sunset provision for these gift and estate tax exemptions, which says that these exemptions will automatically revert back to the 2017 amount that index for inflation um, beginning on January 1, 2026. So Congress could act and pass legislation to keep the exemption amounts where they currently are or change them to something else. But absent any action from Congress, these amounts will automatically revert back to something that's probably around $7 million per person, but we won't know for sure because it does depend on inflation. Um, so there was a lot of concern when the exemption was first um, doubled about what would happen if the sunset does occur and then someone who made gifts during the time of the higher exemption amount died and at the point when they died the exemption was was lower than the amount of the gifts that they had made um, in 2019 final regulations were issued um, that created the anti-clawback rule that says that the estate of a donor who made completed gifts that were not subject to gift tax as a result of the increased exemption. So they weren't subject to gift tax because they had enough exemption at that point. Those will not be clawed back and taxed in their estate. 
Um, there were proposed regulations last year that did create an exception and not an exception to the anti-clawback rule. So um, these sorts of transfers could be clawed back in. And those are gifts that are included in a donor's estate where the donor retained title, possession, use, benefit, or control of the property. Okay, so there's a number of planning techniques um, you can take advantage of before the sunset. Um, none of us have a crystal ball, so we don't know what will happen in 2025, if the sunset will happen, or if Congress will act and keep the current exemption amount. So I like to say that you can plan for the worst and hope for the best. Um, so planning as if the sunset will occur, um, talk with your clients if they have a desire to make more gifts and they have remaining exemption and they have assets available to do so, you should encourage them to do so sooner rather than later. Um, if they have existing trusts that they would like to add to, then that's pretty easy. If they don't have existing trusts or if they, they don't like those trusts and they would like to create new trusts, you could start working with them to get those trusts drafted and even get the accounts open. <clears throat> Um, and they don't have to fund them right away, but just get everything teed up to avoid kind of a mad rush in 2025 when everyone is going crazy trying to draft all of these new trusts and transfer assets. Um, but I do encourage you to really speak with your clients and make sure that they have the desire to make these gifts and that they have the financial ability to do so. Um, just because you can give away $13 million for tax purposes doesn't mean that you should. Um, we don't want our clients running out of money or, you know, you know, only letting the tax tail wag the dog um, and then coming back later and regretting making those gifts and having to you know, go to their kids for money. Um, so if clients do want to go through with, with using their remaining exemption, like I said, they could add to existing trusts, they can create new trusts, they can make outright gifts. Um, if they're looking for some flexibility, they could consider a spousal lifetime access trust or a SLAT, which is something that I'll talk about a little bit later on. And they could also consider a tax-friendly jurisdiction like Delaware or New Hampshire. Um, and those states also don't have a perpetuities period, so they could take advantage of a true dynasty trust that would go on um, as long as the assets remain. So if your clients have already used up all their exemption or they're they're going to before the sunset and they still want to do more, they're in luck because there are a lot of things that you can do if you don't have any gift tax exemption left. So first is annual exclusion gifts. So this is the amount that you can give away once per year to any person and as many people as you want. So it's $17,000 per recipient uh, once per year or 34, <clears throat> $34,000 for a married couple. So I could give this amount to my brother, my sister, my neighbor, each of my kids. I could give it to Allison. Um, there's no limit on that, and you don't have to file a gift tax return in most situations for these gifts. So these are really popular, um, usually around the holidays or in January. Um, they can be really helpful to you know family members or kids. Um, to help pay for expenses and things like that. Annual exclusion gifts can be made outright, so you can just send a wire or a check. Um, they can be made to certain types of trusts, to crummy trusts, and if you're doing that, just make sure that you are following the rules of that trust and sending the crummy notices to the beneficiaries. They can be made to custodial accounts, like UTMA accounts, so the Uniform 
transfers to minors act with those just keep in mind that at age 18 or 21 at the age of majority the minor who is no longer a minor um, takes over control of that account it converts to an individual account um, so just keep an eye on how much is in those accounts over the years. I think sometimes clients make, you know, exclusion gifts to those accounts and then they really add up over time. And suddenly you have, you know, a college student who has access to a lot of money that might not be what the parents wanted. And then finally, you can make annual exclusion gifts to 529 college savings plans as well. Um, and this offers another beneficial option of front-loading these plans with five years worth of annual exclusion gifts. So I can put in five years worth of gifts um, in year one, as long as I don't make any more gifts to that person over the next four years. So if I'm single or if I'm making them myself, that's $85,000 that I can put into the 529 plan in year one. Or if I'm married, um, I, we can put in $170,000 in year one. And that's really beneficial because you're just getting the power of comp compounding interest going sooner. With this, you do have to file a gift tax return. And if you die during the five-year period, the, the amounts um, for the years that you were not living will be pulled back into your estate. Um, another planning technique that doesn't require any exemption is the direct payment of tuition and medical expenses. So you can pay tuition for anyone you want. This does not have to be a family member. Um, you can pay medical expenses, including health insurance. The important thing here is that the payments have to be made directly to the institution. So directly to the school or to the hospital or to the insurance company. If you make the gift to the person to then use the money to pay these expenses, that will count as a gift and either use your annual exclusion or your exemption. Um, if you're looking to combine some of these accounts, you can you can combine this technique with the 529 plan. And, and you know, if you're if it's for grandchildren or someone else, you could pay their tuition directly and then also fund a 529 plan with the annual exclusion gifts. And they could use the 529 plan for paying for room and board, um, books, and laptops because the, the direct payment of tuition is for tuition only. It's not for these other expenses like room and board. Uh, so transfers between spouses are not taxable because of the unlimited marital deduction. Um, so one way that this could be useful is if you have a married couple and one spouse has most of the assets in his or her name and has used up all of their exemption and the other spouse who doesn't have as many assets in their name still has exemption left over, the wealthier spouse could transfer assets to the less wealthy spouse and that's not a taxable event. Um, and then the less wealthy spouse could use those assets to then make a gift and use some of their exemption. So they can make an outright gift to someone else. They could fund a trust, including a flat for the benefit of the wealthy spouse. Um, when you get into that situation, you want to just be careful that you're waiting long enough between transfers so that it's not treated as a step transaction. There's no um, set guidance on what the right amount of time of that holding period is to, to leave the assets in the name of the, the second spouse to hold the assets, but generally just longer is better. So, you know, if you could wait a calendar year, that's great. Or if not, maybe um, space them out over different statement periods, um, but just enough time so that it's, it doesn't look like it's a step transaction. And finally, gifts to charity are not taxable. So 
if you've used all of your exemption, you can make as many charitable gifts as you'd like, and you don't have to worry about um, paying any gift tax on those transfers. Okay, a few more planning techniques where exemption is not required include wraps. Um, for the grantor retained annuity trusts. Um, this is when you are the grantor is <clears throat> making a gift to an irrevocable trust and getting back annuities over the term of the grant, um, which can be any term over two years, plus statutory interest that is set by the IRS each month. And if you have a zeroed out grant, there would be no gift tax and you achieve the zeroed out grant by just making sure that the total amounts that the grantor is getting back is the total amount of the, the value of what they contributed plus that interest. So as long as the whatever you put into the grant um, appreciates over that interest rate, which in May is 4.4% and in June is 4.2%. Um, so they're much higher than we were used to the past couple of years. We had a good stretch of very low grant curl rates. Um, but as long as the assets that you put into the grant appreciate over that interest rate, all of that appreciation over the interest rate will stay in the grant and then pass to the remainder of beneficiaries without being subject to gift tax and without using any of your exemptions. So that's always a great tool that can be used if you don't have exemption or even in conjunction with other tools that you're using to use up some of your exemption. Another technique is a sale. This is similar to a grant. Um, it's where a grantor sells assets, um, which could be a bundle of securities or an interest in a family limited partnership, something like that, to the trust in exchange for a promissory note. It's not a gift because it's a sale and there's no income tax consequences because it's a grantor trust. So it's the same person on both sides of the equation. Um, one thing to note is that when you're engaging in this technique, the grantor trust that's buying the assets does need to have some seed money to make it a legitimate sale because otherwise it looks like a gift. If, if you're selling assets to a trust that really has no ability to buy the assets in a real way, then that's not a real sale. Um, so typically practitioners agree that the seed money should be about 10% of whatever the trust is buying. So if you're selling assets worth $1 million to your grantor trust, the trust should have $100,000 in it. So if you have a trust that's already funded and has that amount, that's great. You don't have to worry about it. If you were setting up a new trust to do this, you would have to make a gift to that trust and use exemption or pay gift tax to get that seed money into that trust. Um, one benefit of this technique over Grats is that you can engage in GST planning because as long as you allocate GST exemption to that seed money or if the trust that's already funded that you're using is GST exempt, um, it will continue to be GST exempt even after this sale. Whereas with a GRAT, um, you cannot allocate GST exemption to a GRAT at the beginning of the GRAT because it's subject to the estate tax um, inclusion period or an ETIP. Um, so you cannot allocate GST until the end of that when the grant terminates. So you really don't have any leverage there. Like you have leverage with a sale to a grantor trust. Um, okay. So the sales in exchange for a promissory note. So you want to document the sale with the promissory note. You want to use at least the applicable federal rate or the interest rate. You can go higher if you want to, but you probably wouldn't, but definitely use at least the AFR 
and respect the provisions of the note. Uh, the note can be interest only with a balloon payment at the end, or it can be amortized over the term of the note to pay principal and interest. But whatever it is, just make sure um, that the trust is making those regular payments um, so that it doesn't get collapsed as a gift. So at the end of the term of the note, the if, if it's a balloon payment, the grantor will receive back the, the balance of the principal and they've been getting the interest payments the whole time. Whatever is left over, so again, like a grant, whatever has a if the assets have appreciated over that interest rate over the term, um, that appreciation will stay in the trust for the benefit of the trust beneficiaries and it won't be subject to gift tax and you don't need any gift tax exemption. So very similar to a grant, except for that GST planning piece. And also um, there's no statute for sales to grantor trusts, um, whereas there is a statute for a grant. So I think some, some people feel more comfortable with a grant for that reason. Um, another thing to keep in mind with these two techniques, the grants and sales to grantor trusts, um, it really is all about what you are putting in. So you want to try to find an asset that you feel comfortable will appreciate over the interest rate um, and that it will go up because that's how you that's how you get the most out of these techniques. If you can find an asset to contribute that will be eligible for valuation discounts, that's even better because um, you kind of get some locked in appreciation from the beginning. So you could have your clients set up a family limited partnership and transfer a minority interest in that to the grad or to the trust and get um, a qualified appraisal for that from an independent valuation firm. And they might apply valuation discounts for lack of marketability um, because it's not a publicly available company and lack of control because it's a minority interest. And sometimes those discounts can be you know, around 30%. Um, and that's beneficial because if you're transferring something, maybe an interest in an LLC that upfront is worth a million dollars, but it's discounted um, for gift tax purposes for, by 30%, um, the, the amount for that purpose of what's going into the grant will only be $700,000. So that's all that the grantor has to get back. And that $300,000 delta will stay in the grant and pass to the remainder beneficiaries at the, at the end of the grant. Um, another technique that doesn't require any exemption are intra-family loans. Um, they do not have to be made to family members. You can make a loan to anyone you want. Um, and kind of like the sale to the grantor trust here, you want to just make sure that you are respecting the formality. So you want to properly document the loan with a promissory note, um, use the AFR. Um, again, that's just the floor. You can go higher. Situations where I've seen clients go above the AFR include if they're lending money to a family member to allow them to purchase a home, maybe a child. Sometimes when the AFR was very low, sometimes they would go a little bit higher just to make it seem a little bit more like a mortgage rate, but still lower than traditional mortgage rates. Um, and just make sure that the borrower is making regular payments. Thank you, Nicole. I'm going to talk about um, planning in a high interest rate environment um, is, is, is the heading here. I think some people might say high interest rate environment might not be accurate, but perhaps you call it higher interest rate environment. Because I think even though all, uh, I think many of us feel that interest rates are high right now, by historical standards, they really aren't. But just to, to give a little bit of context, um, 
then May 2023, so the, the current month, um, Section 7520 rate, which is the rate that um, that we use for techniques like, like the GRAT that, that Nicole was just talking about, that is 4.4%. Um, it's been between 3.6% and 5.2% for the last year, so somewhere somewhere in that range. Um, but 2006 to 2008 was the last time we saw these these rates. So 2008 coincided with the, the beginning of the, the financial crisis, and as a result of, of the financial crisis, rates were, were, were brought down, right? And they never really came back up to the levels that that they were at until now, right? So with you know we consider that we're in a, a high inflationary environment right now, but we're really back to where we were in in the pre two thousand eight area. So what what does that all mean? It just it just makes makes us rethink some of some of our planning strategies and and things that perhaps we haven't been doing for. Um, 10, 15 years become interesting again. And maybe certain techniques that were so valuable when when the 7520 rate was uh 40 basis points, 60 basis points, and, and maybe it, it causes us to rethink these. So I think it keeps us on our toes and that we're that we're always having to look at at what might be the best um, strategy for our particular clients at the particular time. So what are some techniques that are interest rate sensitive? Um, sales to grantor trusts, um, like Nicole was was talking about, QPERTs, qualified personal residence trusts, charitable rate remainder trusts, the grad. Th these are all um, techniques that involve um, either the assets appreciating in excess of a of a certain rate or present value discounts that are rate based. So all of these techniques um, will be. Uh, affected by by the rate that's that's in effect at the time. A few silver linings. Um, always, always try to see a silver lining with high inflation is high inflation adjustment. So, for years, the annual exclusion was fifteen thousand dollars. People just sort of assumed it was fifteen thousand dollars. Then it went up to sixteen thousand dollars, and then immediately went up again to seventeen thousand dollars. So, just the ability to give a little more. Um, tax-free is is certainly useful. And I, I think it's worth reminding your clients who might be set on autopilot to make those $15,000 gifts on January 1st, make sure that they know that actually it's now $17,000. Um, the exemption, the lifetime gift, estate and GST exemption is $12.92 million. That's up $860,000 from, from last year. So almost a million dollars just in the inflation adjustment. I mean that that's that's real money and that that's that's huge. And so I think for clients to understand, you know, perhaps they're not um every year topping off their irrevocable trust with their inflation adjustment, but I think it does make sense to to do it this year, right? Maybe they have inflation adjustment from last year and 2023. So they they can make a pretty sizable gift um again this year. So there are certain planning techniques that thrive in low interest rate environments and certain that thrive in higher interest rate environments. So the, the techniques that we were very, um, you know, using all the time when, when rates were lower, um, the charitable lead annuity trust, the lower interest rate 
meant that your client would have a higher present value of the charitable interest, and that would give them a higher charitable income tax deduction. So not to say that you wouldn't do a CLAT today, but just keep in mind that that the deduction may, you know, would be lower than it would in a different interest rate environment. Um, GRATs. Here, you have to, the GRAT asset has to appreciate in excess of the 7520 rate in order for the remainder beneficiaries to receive value. So a higher 7520 rate just means a higher hurdle for that asset to, to appreciate. I still, we're still using GRATs a lot. And I think that's because when a GRAT is successful, it's not successful like on the margins, right? No, no one's doing a GRAT because the 7520 rate is 3% and they have an asset that's going to earn 5%, right? Like no one's doing a grat for that amount of appreciation. You're doing a grat for a, a big, like a volatile asset that, you know, it could it could double in value or it could be cut in half by, by 50%. And so th those are the types of assets that you put into grats. So I think that we and many practitioners are still using grats because when you have that type of asset, yeah, you have a higher hurdle rate instead of, only having to get above, you know, one percent or or sixty basis points, like it was for a while, you have to hit a higher hurdle. But if your asset is doubling in value, it's still going to be a home run. Interfamily sales, um, similar to what Nicole talked about, um, the if you're able to lend at low interest rates to your family members, that can be very um, very efficient, very effective. We see this with clients lending for practical reasons, right? Like to buy a house or just to help them get, get started in their lives. But also we we see it, and, and that I think is, is still going on, right? I think for a young person who is looking to buy their first house, um, borrowing from the bank of mom and dad, even if that has to be at 4.4%, um, is still better than going to um, the commercial bank and borrowing at, I don't know, six, 7%, right? So that I think I still see that we're, we're seeing a lot of. Um, the other context in which we use intrafamily sales that is is more, I guess, rate sensitive would be just arbitrage. So if you could lend at 60 basis points and you're just lending you know, a, a large amount, right? So you, you transfer $10 million of cash to your irrevocable grantor trust and take back a note at 60 basis points, and then you hope that your investment team can earn more than 60 basis points over the life of that loan that you know the the arbitrage there in between the the earnings and the the rate of interest that you pay back to yourself is all tax free and so that that i think is is still very valuable but of course now it's it's harder to achieve right because you have to have assets that will um consistently achieve more than 4.4% so that I, I think is, is something that we're perhaps seeing a, a little bit less of. Um, higher interest rate environment techniques, charitable remainder trusts, um, as I mentioned here, with a CRT, the grantor retains the right to receive income um, and the grantor's payment can be either an annuity or a unitrust. So, and that just depends on whether it's a fixed amount or whether uh, the, the amount that the grantor receives varies um, year to year. Um, and then the remainder, passes to charity. Um, with the CRT, the grantor receives a charitable deduction based on the present value 
of the charity's remainder interest. And so a higher interest rate results in a higher charitable income tax deduction. These are generally used in connection with um, taxpayers who have a big liquidity event um, and maybe are selling assets with very low basis and they don't want to recognize that, that big gain all in the first year. So by putting it into the CRT, selling it, you're able to defer the gain and recognize it in time over the course of your annuity, um, over the term of the trust when you receive those payments. Um, and higher interest rates, as I said, result in the higher charitable deductions. So I think these are these are starting to become more interesting for, for a lot of clients. Qualified personal residence trust, QPERTS, um, similar theory here. The grantor um, retains a um, an interest in the trust for a term of years. And so again, the, the interest rate is, is very um, relevant to how that is valued. Here, the grantor transfers their personal residence to a trust and retains the right to live there for a term of years. And after that term is over, the ownership of the residence passes to the beneficiaries, whether that's his or her children or a trust for the benefit of his or her children, it can take different forms. If the grantor doesn't survive the term, then it reverts back into the grantor's estate and it's as if the transaction was, was unwound. With higher interest rates, the value of the client's retained interest is higher. And then that means that the value of the gifted interest is lower. And so you're able to pass more to the next generation um, more efficiently because the amount that you retain is worth more. And here I just um, gave a chart showing the, the impact of, of the rate difference. I think it's most relevant in this, this first um, example. So here I took a, um, a grantor who's 80 years old and had a $10 million residence. And so just you know, in, in the two-year time period between May of 2021 and May of 2023, the rate went from 1.2% to 4.4. And you can really see the effect of that interest rate um, in the short term, the, the five-year QPER. So a million dollar discount um, to the residents just by the nature of the um, interest rate having increased. Now, with QPERTs, I, I think um, these are perhaps not, not my favorite um, vehicles. I think you know, they, they can be right in the right situation. And I think this, this illustrates a situation that could be very right. But I always like to, um, I, I like the phrase that Nicole used a, a few minutes ago of, of letting the tax tail wag the dog, because here there are a lot of other considerations in addition to the tax benefits. Um, I'm finding I, you know, I think we didn't create QBERTs for for a long time. So I, I um, am actually at the stage where I'm um, unwinding some QBERTs, right? Or or dealing with the administration at the end of the term because maybe QBERTs that were created in the early 2000s when rates were higher, you know, probably similar to what what they are today. People created a lot of a lot of QBERTs, and of course, then the estate tax exemption was so low. Also, so you have a lot of people creating QBERTs that are now terminating. And I'm finding that a lot of times clients just don't like the concept of paying rent to their kids for their own house. So I think, you know, there, there's there's a lot to, to think about here. Um, and it's, I would just um, suggest that, that 
you know, the, the tax savings be, be one piece of the equation because um, the the non-tax aspects, particularly with the QPERT, when you're dealing with someone's primary residence, um, those those are very, um, very important uh, to the clients um, as well. And then just wanted to spend a few minutes, um, you know, talking about things in the market that that are interesting to 2023 obviously um one big um market event this year is is what's going on in in the banking industry right um and so i think it's important to remember the fdic um insurance requirements and what those mean um i think a lot of people myself included sort of took this for granted right we sort of you you think about about this two hundred and fifty thousand oh what, what is that really no that maybe that's not not so important right a, a half a million is fine what, uh, this is never going to happen and then you know it was it was a big wake up call to see that that banks can fail and um in this this day and age how quickly it it can happen so I think it's just good to keep in mind um, what are the FDIC limits um, and so for the general rule is two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. A value for a joint account that can be up to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars per owner. So you could have a half a million dollars potentially of um, protection there for for a joint account. The trust rules are really complex, and they're actually changing um, next year. But generally speaking, you could potentially, depending on the terms of the trust, get two hundred and fifty thousand dollars of coverage per beneficiary. But counting the beneficiaries, it's it's somewhat complex. It's it's really dependent on the facts. And so I I I caution you to, to read through those rules very carefully. Um, you know, if if you have very significant deposit accounts um in a trust of which you are the trustee or or that your client is is trustee of there. Um, things that are not covered are um like money market mutual funds and other things that people you know, I think sometimes people use the term cash loosely or sort of cash equivalents. Those are are not covered by FDIC insurance. Um, and just some fiduciary considerations. Um, thinking about about this, um, if if you are a trustee for for your clients, and and what do you do in this case, right? So what do you do if your client has? $2 million of, of cash sitting in an account. And they, you know, perhaps it's it's parked there temporarily because they just had a liquidity event and they're not sure how they're going to invest it. And, you know, so there's lots of good reasons why your trust could be sitting in cash, but just rethinking what you mean by cash. And does it need to be cash in a deposited account? Um, do you spread that money out across different institutions? Do you um, use something more of like a cash equivalent um, or or something like T-bills or, or or something that is not subject to to the the issue that that happened uh, um, earlier this year, where where we did have a lot of uncertainty as to whether those deposits were going to receive dollar for dollar value. Um, and I also just want excuse me point out that Massachusetts has some additional coverage. Um, Massachusetts Depositors Insurance Fund does cover some deposits over the FDIC limit for regular bank accounts. And then credit unions in Massachusetts also will insure those deposits over the FDIC limit. So good things just to, to look about look at. I think if nothing else, this, this uncertainty in the banking industry just makes all of us um, as lawyers, as advisors, as 
um, fiduciaries just sit up and think just it, it's good to double check where everything sits and whether changes should be made. It's a good opportunity to be talking to your clients about their cash management for, for those accounts. Thank you, Allison. Okay, so I'm going to talk about a few planning techniques that you can take advantage of during this volatile market. Um, so the first is an income tax planning technique, so tax loss harvesting. This is when you are realizing losses in your portfolio and then using those losses to offset capital gains. Um, so you can sell securities that are at a loss and then take those and use them to offset your capital gains to lower that tax bill. So if you, if you do this, if you realize losses in your account and offset all of your capital gains for that year and you still have excess losses, you can use those excess losses to offset up to $3,000 of ordinary income um, each year. And then you can also carry forward your capital loss indefinitely. So that's great. There's no time limit on when you have to use those. You do want to be careful of the wash sale rule. Um, so a wash sale is when you sell a security, um, for example, to generate a loss for tax loss harvesting, and then repurchase a similar holding at a similar price. Um, so this rule prohibits um, deducting a loss on a sale of a security if you then replace it with the same or a substantially similar security within 30 days. And what they're getting at here is that you shouldn't take advantage of the loss deduction if you're essentially in the same position before and after because you just repurchased the same security um, after selling it. So you want to just make sure you're not running afoul of that. Um, another income tax technique is a Roth conversion. So this is where you're taking a traditional IRA, which is a tax-deferred retirement account, um, that was funded with after-tax dollars and the RMDs will be subject to income tax when you take those and converting it to a Roth IRA, um, which has a lot of advantages, including withdrawals are not subject to income tax and you are not subject to RMDs. So if you don't need the money, you can just leave it in the account. Um, so with the conversion, the amount that you convert from a traditional to a Roth IRA is included in your taxable income from that year. So you want to make sure that your clients are working closely with their tax advisors to understand that impact. You don't have to convert the whole account. You can do it in tranches um, over a period of years um, to kind of spread out the tax impact over time. Um, but this is a good technique during volatile times just because because you are paying tax on the amount converted, it's better to do this when the value when the value of the account is lower. So if there is a dip in the market and your traditional IRA account has gone down in value, it might be worth taking a look at converting part or all of that to a Roth IRA. And then your clients can also work with their tax advisors to think through whether or not there are any ways that they can offset the income generated by the conversion, like charitable contribution deduction. Um, and then another technique is GRATS. So Allison and I have both mentioned GRATS a few times. Um, they fit in, in a lot of places of planning. Um, so funding a GRAT during a dip in the market could be a good planning technique as long as you are confident that that asset will go back up at some point over the term of the GRAT. So if you have securities that are just taking a hit right now, it could be a good time to put those into a GRAT, 
um, for a few years. And then all of that upside when the market recoups would be captured in the grat. And as long as it's over that 75, 20 hurdle rate, all that appreciation will be sent to the remainder beneficiaries without using any of your gift tax exemption. Um, some other things that you can do with grats during volatile periods, if you already have a grat, is a grat freeze. Um, so you can freeze a grat that's doing really well um, during a volatile market. If it's hitting a high, um, you can freeze it to lock in that appreciation. This is obviously really hard to measure. Um, it's hard to know what the top is, but I think it's harder than seeing the bottom sometimes. But um, if you have a client who just says, you know what, this grat is at this amount, like I'm really happy with that. I don't want to take any more risk. Um, you could freeze it at that point. And you can substitute in cash and just ride out the rest of the, the grat period with the cash in the grat. Um, you can also freeze a failing grat. So if you have a grat that is underwater, so you know it's not going to be successful, it might not even have enough left to make the annuity payments back to the grantor, never mind having anything left over for the remainder beneficiaries. You can also freeze that. Um, and then you can take the holdings that you, you took out of the unsuccessful grat and put them in a new grab. Um, again, if you're confident that they will go back up at some point. So the benefit of doing that instead of just leaving them in the unsuccessful grat is that <clears throat> because of with a grat, you're getting back the value of whatever you put in. So if you have the original grat that you put $100 in, the grantor has to get back $100 plus interest. If those holdings have now decreased to $70 because of the market, um, you could freeze it by putting $70 of cash into that grat and then taking the $70 worth of securities and putting them into a new grat. And now the new grat will only have to pay you back $70 as opposed to $100 of the original grat. So you're starting at a better place in terms of a lower amount that is owed back to the grantor. Um, you do have to keep in mind the 75, 20 hurdle rates, like Allison said, it's usually it's not making a huge impact um, just based on the type of grants that our clients are usually funding. But if you have a grant that's a few years old and was funded when the hurdle rate was 1% and now it's, you know, 4.4%, you do just want to model out um, the scenarios there to make sure it's still a good decision. Um, but that can be a really powerful technique. Um, you can freeze a grat, like I said, so the grantor is exercising their power of substitution by putting something else into the grat of equivalent value. So you can put in cash. Um, I think that's the easiest thing to do. I think it's probably the most common to put in other securities or other assets, or you can freeze it with a promissory note. So if your client doesn't have other assets available that they want to put into the grat, you could put in a promissory note and then the grat distributes the note out to the grantor. Um, for the ongoing annuity payments. Um, the trustee should sign something declaring that whatever is being substituted in, it, substituted in is something of equivalent value because you just want to make sure you're following all the rules there for the swap. Okay, and we're going to wrap up today by talking about some popular planning techniques. So I'll start by discussing spousal lifetime access trusts. So I mentioned these um, earlier on in the pre presentation. So these have become very popular over the past few years with the increased exemption amount with clients who really want to use up that doubled exemption before it possibly goes away in 2026, but maybe are a little bit uncertain about 
just giving money to a trust for their kids or outright to their kids and think, you know, I might need it later. I'm not sure. I just, I don't feel comfortable. So this is a great um, tool for people that feel that way because it's an irrevocable trust that can be for the benefit of <clears throat> children and grandchildren, but also includes the grantor's spouse. Um, and this provides a safety net of sorts because the spouse as a permissible beneficiary can access the funds, you know, in the future if, if they need it. Um, so the grantor is not a beneficiary, but the spouse has access. And once the spouse receives a distribution, they're free to do whatever they want with that money. Um, so these trusts can be grantor trusts. So the grantor can continue to pay the income taxes generated by the trust. And these trusts, you know, offer the same creditor protections as other irrevocable trusts, as long as you're respecting all of those trust formalities. Um, the spouse can serve as a co-trustee, um, as long as their power to make distributions are subject to distributions for health, education, maintenance, and support. Um, and any distributions outside of that standard would have to be made by an independent trustee. Um, so flats are great, very popular right now. If you're talking to your clients about them, you do want to just have a discussion about the scenario where the beneficiary spouse dies before the grantor spouse, because then your safety net is gone because the grantor spouse is not a beneficiary and your kind of access to that trust has pre-deceased you. Um, so some ways to get around this is that each spouse can fund their own SLAT. So they can each use their exemption and set up a trust for their kids and then the other spouse. You want to be careful to avoid reciprocal SLATs because the IRS would unwind those and say that you didn't really change your situation. You didn't make any gift here. Um, and you can do that on a drafting on the drafting side by doing things like changing the powers of appointment provisions or maybe changing the failure of beneficiaries provisions, but you just want to make sure that the trusts are not identical. Another option is purchasing life insurance on the life of the beneficiary spouse and naming um, the, grant, the grantor spouse um, or trust for their benefit as the beneficiary of that insurance. And then I think the most important one is just keeping enough assets outside of the slot. Um, so like we said earlier, just because you can give away $13 million doesn't mean that you should. If you have young clients or clients who spend a lot of money or who plan to make substantial lifestyle changes when they retire, um, you should really have a conversation with them and use some software, um, financial planning software, if you have it, to model out these gifts that they want to make and just make sure that they have enough money outside of the slot to maintain their lifestyle. Um, while it's true that the spouse, is, the beneficiary spouse is there, and can access the money. Um, you don't really want to rely on that because it's just, it's not great planning because you're unwinding good estate planning. So when you take money out of the slot, you're bringing it back into your estate and it's just a waste of exemption. So I like to tell my clients that yes, it's a safety net, but you should really just pretend that that money is not there unless you really need it um, and just treat it like other trusts for your kids and try to forget about it. Um, so in addition to planning for the beneficiary spouse predeceasing the grantor spouse, you should also plan for what happens if they get divorced, because unless it's a very amicable divorce, amicable divorce, um, that would probably also cut off the grantor's lifeline to that trust. Um, so this is a situation where a prenup, or if you're already married when they're funding the slot, a postnup could be useful. It's not to share this um, Florida statute. It's fairly new. It's from last year. Um, so as of June 30th, 2022, um, in Florida, a grantor spouse 
may be added as a beneficiary of a SLAT after the death of the grantor spouse, which would effectively convert the SLAT into a domestic asset protection trust at that time. Um, so this is only for trusts that are created after June 30th, 2022, under Florida law for spouses who are Florida residents. Um, but it is kind of a, a nice exception to those things that we were just talking about a second ago. The beneficiary spouse must be a lifetime beneficiary of the flat. So the statute says that the trust cannot have a provision that the trust, the spouse is removed as a beneficiary if there's a divorce or something like that. Um, and the grantor spouse can only be added back, added in as a beneficiary as a result of the beneficiary spouse's death. Um, they can't be added in because of divorce or financial hardship or anything like that. So it's a pretty um, narrow scope exception. Okay, and then I'm just going to spend a minute talking about directed trusts. Um, so directed trusts allow for the separation of various responsibilities among trustees um, and advisors. So you can have the distributions, the management of the trust, and the administration of the trust um, split up among various fiduciaries among the trust instrument. Um, the trustee could be directed in decisions relating to investments or distributions, um, which would either eliminate or reduce their risk um, for the directed trustee. And the parties to a directed trust might include an investment advisor, director, or committee. So if you have an investment advisor, they are managing all the investments. They're taking that responsibility off of the directed um, trustee. Um, this can be useful if a trust owns a risky investment or a closely held business, or if the assets of the trust are not diversified and the trustee doesn't want to be liable for that, you could have an investment advisor. You can also have a distribution advisor, director, committee who could take over discretionary distributions, which might be useful if you have unique family situations or something like that going on with the beneficiaries and the trustee doesn't want to be involved in those decisions. And then you can also have an administrative trustee and a trust protector. And here is the <clears throat> Massachusetts statute for a directed trust. So Massachusetts adopted the UTC, Article 8, 808. I won't read this, um, but you can see it here and uh, materials will be shared with you. Okay, and then some fiduciary considerations when you're drafting or administering directed trusts. Um, one thing to keep in mind is just the, the succession plan for the various advisors. So the investment, distribution, administrative trustees. Um, if you don't have successors named in the trust instrument, who will be responsible for appointing those people? Um, keeping in mind that those responsibilities could come back to the trustee if there is no successor and talking with the trustee about that, something that whether or not they're comfortable with that. You also just want to set clear expectations among the various advisors, make sure they know what they're responsible for and how they are interacting with each other and impacting each other. Um, this can be important if you have you know, family members or friends serving in these roles, they might not be you know, familiar with fiduciary responsibilities. You just want to make sure that they're um, following all of their duties there. Um, like all trusts, you want to be make sure want to make sure that the fiduciaries are keeping accurate and up to date records. Um, so the directed trustee might still be subject to internal and external audits. Um, this can be important when there is an investment advisor 
Um, so if you have that risky investment that the trustee didn't want to be liable for, so you have an investment advisor, the directed trustee should still be getting updates on asset values from the investment advisor um, because they do have the duty to inform the beneficiaries and report to the beneficiaries. And I just wanted to include this note about a, a new-ish Delaware statute um, from 2017 that in Delaware, you can have an excluded trustee. Um, so the statute says if a co-trustee of a Delaware trust has exclusive authority to take certain actions, the excluded trustee is not liable for any loss resulting directly or indirectly from the actions taken. So it's kind of um, totally excluded from liability there. Thanks, Nicole. And I think that's a that's a great segue into our very last topic of the afternoon, which is about trust decanting. So what it what is decanting? Um, decanting is 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 what I consider decanting is a way, is one mechanism that we can use to make changes to trust that are otherwise irrevocable. So decanting is technically a discretionary exercise of a fiduciary's authority to make distributions in such a way that they make those distributions in further trust rather than outright to the beneficiary. So the concept is that if a fiduciary has the ability to make a distribution to beneficiary A, then they should also have the authority to make a lesser distribution, which would be a distribution to a trust for the benefit of beneficiary A. Now, there's a lot more that, that goes into it, right? Well, what can you do? What can't you do? What can you change? What can you add? What can you delete? But at its core, that that is what decanting is. Um, and I, I think that it provides a lot of leeway in terms of changing the terms of the trust agreement, um, including so much as, as removing beneficiaries. So what are some examples where, where we've used decanting before? Um, I would say probably one of, one of the the most common um, instances would be allowing for ongoing trusts. And I, I think it's it's somewhat common to see that in older trusts, um, particularly maybe before maybe the 90s and earlier, you see a lot of outright distributions. So you might see an insurance trust and after the death of the um, grantor and the grantor's spouse, it gets divided and distributed outright to the children. And that may be fine. Um, the beneficiaries may just be happy to receive the, the cash um, proceeds of the life insurance, receive it um, and, and go their separate ways. But it, it might not be the best bet, right? So um, you could you could see both, you could see decanting being helpful in two very different situations here. So let's say in situation one, same example, you have this islet, which has a you know $5 million policy pays out and two children are each going to inherit um, uh, $2.5 million. In one example, let's say that one of those children has some substance abuse issues and receiving $2.5 million in cash would be detrimental to their health and well-being. In that case, you could see that decanting the, the trust before the death of the survivor of the grantors might be very uh, might be in the best interests of the beneficiaries, and then you could take an, uh, a very different scenario where same five and five million dollar two and a half to each of 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 the children, 
both of the children are are you know very um, financially responsible and in fact have very high earning jobs of of their own and they could say well I don't I don't want this this money to come out to me I would rather this stay in trust for the benefit of my children and mom and dad you know the grantors of the trust have enough GST exemption to to allocate to this so let's decant this into a, a trust and then have mom and dad allocate GST to that. And so, or maybe it already was allocated GST. You, you sometimes see that even though, um, even though the trust goes outright, you sometimes see that the GST was, was allocated on, on a gift tax return. So there, there could be instances where, where that makes a lot of sense. Um, now you still there are still requirements about when the trust can end and and investing, which we'll get into when we talk about the GST um, tax consequences. But those are some examples I think where where decanting can be um, very helpful with creating an ongoing trust. Um, also removing a beneficiary, so you cannot add a beneficiary with a decanting, but you may remove a beneficiary. So back to the, the general concept, which is that if I, as the trustee, have the ability to make a distribution to A, I can make a, a distribution in trust for the benefit of A. Well, in that case, I, I had A and B as beneficiaries. And just like I could have distributed money to A and not to B, I can decant for A and not for B. Another example where you might use a decanting would be perhaps to turn off grantor trust status. Um, depending on the trust instrument, there could be lots of different ways in which the trust is a grantor trust. Power to substitute, the grantor could release that. But sometimes there are there are other provisions in the trust. Um, maybe the power, maybe someone has the power to add charitable beneficiaries, or there are other strings that make this a, a grantor trust. So you could decant it into a trust that is non-grantor. Um, you could convert it to a directed trust. So just, just like Nicole was talking about a couple of minutes ago, you have a, a trust that is just served by one trustee. And let's say that they the clients decide that they want to move the trust to, let's say, to Delaware or, or to New Hampshire, both of which have very um, robust directed trustee um, statutes and create different classes of, of trustee, have an administrative trustee that would be you know, a, a big financial institution located in New Hampshire or Delaware, and then have family members serve as investment advisors, distribution advisors, and sort of slice up the different fiduciary responsibilities. That could be a good, a good use of a decanting. And that's actually one that I've used um, quite often in, in the past year. So how do you do decanting? So what what form does this take? Um, there's a couple different ways. I've I've seen it done done both ways. Um, one is that you can, as the trustee, you can take assets and just distribute them to another trust. So maybe that other trust is already existing, or maybe it's a newly created trust, right? So you could have um, a trust that the grantor creates in connection with this decanting, and then you transfer assets from the 2010 trust to the 2023 trust. That's very common. Um, also, you know, perhaps you're transferring from the 2010 trust to the 2012 trust. That that also is a, is another way that could be done with an existing trust that's in existence already. I've also seen it done as as a complete restatement, um, and so this sort of depends on whether you're decanting some or all of the assets. But let's say 
the decanting is really less about moving assets from one tr existing trust to another and about just restating the terms of the original instrument, then I've seen a decanting done that way. And the trustee declares that they are decanting the trust by making a distribution in further trust according to the following provisions. And in that case, I've seen them um, use the same name, the same tax ID number, and that can be efficient because you don't have to retitle assets, retitle accounts, file a final tax return. Um, in the case where you, you take the assets from one trust and move it into a different trust, then you could very well have a situation where you have to get a new EIN number, open new accounts, perhaps file a final tax return for the um, decanted trust and, and move all of those attributes over into the um, in the newly decanted trust. So those are just different ways that that decanting can be can be done. And what is the trustee's authority for for doing this? Um, there can be an explicit decanting power in the language of the trust. Um, less common in in older instruments. I mean, I, I certainly think anything before uh, 2000, you're probably not going to find any decanting type language in, in the trust. Now you see very robust decanting language in, in trusts. Sometimes it mirrors the statute, sometimes it's, it um, supplements um, terms of the statute, and sometimes um, there's just uh, an express power that gives the trustee this authority. Um, here, this is some some sample language. This is actually what, what I like to include in, in some of my trusts, not necessarily give all of the, the requirements, but just give the trustee the the authority, the discretion to make payments in further trust for the benefit of a beneficiary. And this really stems from the to or for the benefit of language that we've seen in trusts for you know a hundred or more years, right? Um, and, and that's very common. The trustee may distribute to or for the benefit of the grantor's children. And so what does for the benefit of mean? It, it means not writing them a check, but distributing it in some way that benefits them. And a trust could be one of one of those ways. So I think this is really decanting is less, um, you know, a, a, a sea change. And, and really, it is just an extension of what has been happening in trust law all along. But it is very, very useful. And I, I've, I've seen it really explode over the past um, maybe eight to 10 years or, or so. Many states also have a, a state um, statute. So Massachusetts does not. Um, Massachusetts courts have said that the two or for the benefit of language is um, sufficient for a trustee to have authority to decant, but we do not have express statutory authority like many states do. Delaware, New Hampshire, South Dakota, Nevada, sort of the, the Alaska, the, the trust that you probably consider as being like the cutting edge trust jurisdiction, um, those states do have decanting statutes. Uh, Florida does, New York does. So th those are um, some states that have different statutes that you could you could take a look at for sort of for examples. And if you were doing a decanting in Massachusetts, just to get a sense of what other states are doing and what you can and, and cannot do. Um, I would say that you know being in Massachusetts where we don't have a statute, so we don't have the the strict regimented um, language that you have to make sure that you you comply with, the 
the, the biggest thing is that you do not add a beneficiary, right? Because it goes back to the core concepts that if you can distribute as a trustee to or for the benefit of a beneficiary, you can distribute to them in further trust. But if you have a trust for the benefit of A and B, you have authority to distribute to A, you have authority to distribute to B, you don't have authority to distribute to C. And so in that case, you could not add C as a beneficiary of the trust. That would not be a proper use of, of a trust accounting. Some fiduciary considerations. So one, one thing that I like about decanting, but sometimes people don't like about decanting, is that the authority is vested in the fiduciary to make this this um, change, right? So unlike other some other methods of, of changing a trust where the grantor consents to it or the beneficiaries consent or everyone consents, this is a fully discretionary act of the trustee. And so you think about who is that, that fiduciary? Is it a corporate trustee? Is it a directed trust where the um, corporate trustee is directed as to distributions. And so it might just be an individual directing the corporate trustee to take the decanting. Um, and then as a fiduciary, if I were a fiduciary being asked to decant, I would think about, you know, how significant are these, these changes? Um, is everyone in agreement with this? Is, is this something that, that, you know, makes a lot of sense? Is, if the grantor is alive, is this something that, that sort of, um, makes sense with their intent in creating the trust or if the grantor is dead can you can you think back and say this is this is a change circumstance that would have been consistent with his or her intent had that been contemplated at the time so things that you would want to think about as a fiduciary um some some people will say that all beneficiaries should have said to the decanting i've heard people worry that um beneficiary assent could have um tax ramifications. Uh, so those, those are things that you'll just have to consider with your clients and, and think about what, what makes the most sense. <laughs> and then I know we are running short on time, but I did want to just run through the tax um, considerations that, that you should be thinking about before um, taking, you know, moving forward with any decanting. From an income tax perspective, um, decanting is generally, um, it's a non-recognition event, just like if you were to distribute assets in kind from a trust to a beneficiary, you don't recognize gain uh, upon that, that occurrence. Same thing with the decanting, carryover basis. Um, estate and gift tax consequences, just consider generally section um, 2036, 2038, sort of retained interest, people having too much control. I think that's where beneficiary ascent, people get a little worried if, if this was orchestrated perhaps by the grantor and he or she is exercising a lot of control over the process and does this look um, facts and circumstances that they really never relinquished control in, in this trust property. Um, the GST tax consequences are, are the most um, important, I, I, I think, when you're thinking about a decanting. I mean, if it's a non-GST trust, then, I mean, you, you don't have to worry about the, the GST tax consequences. But if it is a GST-exempt trust, you want to be very careful that you read the GST modification regs. Um, and I, I gave you the site here. Um, there are two specific... Um, safe harbors that are, are generally um, considered as applying to decanting type transactions. And these GST modification regs deal with um, grandfathered trusts, not trusts that are zero inclusion by 
by reason of having allocated GST to them. But I, I, I believe, and I think most, most believe that they're, they could be used synonymously to a trust that is um, fully GST exempt by reason of a grantor allocating GST exemption. And so there's the discretionary distribution safe harbor, the trust modification safe harbor, and they are a little different. I'll, I'll let you read them in, in your own time just because we're, we're running short on time. But it is very important that the rule against perpetuities, um, our favorite topic from law school, becomes very important here that you don't extend the time of the trust beyond um, the rule against perpetuity. So that um, that is just, whenever I do a decanting, I pull out those regs and just make sure that I, I'm comfortable with those safe harbors and that our facts are falling within them. And if it is a, a very minor administrative type change, then you're probably going to be all set, but just take, take a look at those. And then um, last slide here is just alternatives to, to decanting. If, if the goal is to modify the trust, you know, take it, take a step back. What's wrong with this trust? What are we trying to do? Is there a better way that, that we can get there? Um, so does the trust allow for administrative amendment? Um, do you, should you, um, given the nature of the, you know, the change or the disagreement of the parties, should you go to court and, and ask um, the court to reform the trust? Or um, under the Mass UTC, um, could you do a non-judicial settlement agreement to use one of the trust modification provisions of the Mass UTC and have all of the interested parties sign off on it with a non-judicial settlement agreement in a way that protects everyone and, and people feel um, everyone's agreed to, and that would be binding on all of the interested parties. So I know we're about two minutes and we do wanna keep you all on time today. Um, so I will stop there. Um, if there are questions, feel free to put them in the Q&A um, and I'll turn it over to um, our hosts, um, Susan and Amy. I know they had a couple of comments just about BBA events um, coming up um, later this year. So I'll turn it over to them. Thank you so much, Allison, and thank you, Nicole, for that great presentation. Um, really appreciate you you volunteering to present today. And I want to just mention there are some upcoming events to keep your eye on if, they, if there's something that catches your interest. Um, there's going to be a, a webinar planning for persons with disabilities, special needs trust on May 30th at noon. There's also going to be a webinar on ESG and trust fiduciary considerations June 8th at noon. And finally, um, the Trust and Estates end of year review for 2023, or I guess it's the mid-year review, will be, um, or the end of, year, end of year review will be June 13th at 2 p.m., also available on the web. So hope you guys will all tune into those. And well, I guess with that you. we're conclude we're concluding. So yes, thank you. I don't I don't see any questions here. So thank you. Thank you everyone for joining us. Bye-bye. Thank you, everybody. Have a great afternoon. Thanks, everyone.